Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Human Rights, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rin Vith, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Florence Ashley about their new book, Banning Transgender Conversion Practices, a Legal and Policy Analysis. Florence Ashley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a transfeminine jurist and bioethicist. I'm currently doing my doctorate at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law and Joint Centre for Bioethics. I work across a pretty wide range of topics and issues, mostly focusing on trans health, but really being a little bit all over the place uh, in bioethics, in healthcare, in law, and uh, sometimes in more kind of cultural, like sociological aspects. And I also collaborate on various uh, empirical research projects on uh, usually in transgender health. Fantastic. And I would just say, I mean, for those who are not familiar with your work, you are one of the the busiest scholars, academics I know. I feel like you're constantly putting out new papers or participating in new in new projects. Um, so I'm I'm just I'm so excited to speak with you. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to write um, banning transgender conversion practices. Yeah, so this book project really started from my master's degree and initially I wanted to write my master's on gatekeeping and access to hormones uh, from a legal perspective but then I worked on conversion practices for just a master's class that I took and really saw really felt the need for, for, for this work and reoriented my uh, my master's around that. And a big part of the motivation is that, you know, being trans, so many people around me have experienced conversion practices. So many of my friends, of my partners, and, and everybody around me. And, and so not only do I feel the burden in terms of, of, you know, what it says socially for trans people and for myself that we have this really prominent practice that's predicated on the idea that there's something wrong with, with being trans and really contributes socially to, to this idea. And we see it everywhere, people referring to these practices as a justification for mistreating trans people. So not only was there that, but then also the broader impact on trans communities because we depend on each other 
for life-sustaining work, for support. And when such a huge portion of the community suffers just immense trauma, it impacts, you know, everybody. And being also next to them, I see their pain and their trauma. And I see a policy world and a cultural world that doesn't really seem to care and that doesn't really seem to take their pain seriously. And, you know, I didn't know this was going to become a book when I started, but I thought, hey, maybe I can, you know, do my little part to help on that. Knowing that as, you know, a a trans scholar in law, there are very, very, very few people who can do this sort of work. Um, And so I did my master's and via my master's started becoming increasingly involved in supporting survivors who were fighting to get the practices banned. And through my work with them, got an immense amount of feedback that made my work, you know, a billion times better, but also through that feedback really realized the importance of that work and the need that there was for that work because survivors have an immense amount of knowledge and skill, but few of them have it in the legal policy world. And so having somebody who can translate their knowledge into words that are understandable to policymakers and to lawmakers that speak their language, that speak this language of the law is really valuable and is really how I see my own work. Like I do translation. All of my work is translation, but I translate not, you know, from French to English, although I do sometimes do that. Uh, But instead primarily translate other people's experiences into an academic or a legal or policy language or even a kind of lay language that, you know, people who have power and influence will be able to appreciate. There's, um, there's a term that um, comes up, which I, I realize that sort of starting from starting from talking about a term um, might be a bit unorthodox, but I also feel like it, it goes along with, with your framing of the introduction of your book where um, you know, your, your book is, is aimed at the way that, that I understand it, um, for those who take conversion therapy to be a bad thing. Um, and, and you use this, a, a particular word that I am familiar with, but I was, was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the importance or sort of how you came to use this. Um, and that's transitude. Yeah. Um, so transitude is an interesting word. So it just means, you know, being trans, the state of being trans and, and, is, you know, synonymous with transness and transness would be the one that's most commonly used. And really, honestly, the reason why I use it is it's prettier. Uh, But how I came to use it is that it's the word that we use in Quebec a lot. It's a word that's been developed in the Quebec context as an alternative to the trans-French transidentité or trans-identity. And, you know, it, and so it was a way to differentiate, you know, 
ourselves from uh, from France and and sort of as we developed our own trans communities in Quebec. Uh, but then I started using it in English because there's so much that comes to Quebec from English. There's really this very Anglo-centrism uh, in in Quebec in terms of, of the sources we get because almost everything is written in English. And, you know, I contribute to that because, you know, the reality is there's the, the you know, level, the interest within Quebec is much smaller and the impact is much larger if you write in English because the impact is much uh, larger in English because you, um, you know, most people in Quebec can read it anyway, and people outside of Quebec can also read it. So there's most of the kind of like cultural production that's that people have access to in Quebec is is from outside Quebec and is in English. And so for me, using transitude in English is really a way of of trying to uh, stand against this unidirectional relationship and and try to show the value of what we can develop in outside of that you know uh, anglophone context and and. And so it's this idea of like, you know, we're bringing our to you instead of it always being the other way around. And then also, I mean, this one's silly, but there's also linguistic backing for that, which is like, nor it's just like purists see it as bad form to mix Greek and Latin roots. And so it would be transitude. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I, um, I didn't know that it was that you were drawing on on French um, or on on French language in in Quebec um, for the use of that. I just I found it such a compelling framing um, to talk about the the state of of being trans or of just being trans in a way that um, I don't know didn't necessarily rely on um, on defining oneself by cisgender stuff. I don't. Know, it just I I found it a really it was just this very sort of subtle move that you did. Then I just, I found it so, so deeply meaningful. Um, I wanted to. I like making up words. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a really useful, it's a useful framework. For those who are not familiar um, with the Ontario legal context um, and or the Canadian legal context, could you talk a little bit about Bill 77? Because this is a, a bill that really seems to form a lot of the concrete basis for a lot of the the interventions you make in terms of, you know, suggesting these very practical legal and or policy changes. So if you could talk a little bit about what it what it is and also what you see this bill as actually doing. Yeah, so Bill 77 is Ontario's bill that bans uh, conversion practices and it's the first bill in Canada. Uh, it was passed in 2015, and in the book, I use it as sort of like the example bill when I do the, the anal- my analysis. And the reason why I sent it is, I mean, the first reason is I had to pick something. Uh, but then the other reason is it's really the only bill that truly centered trans people in the legislative history. And my knowledge that's still the case because most bills 
really center like conversion practices targeting uh, cisgender queer people and then sort of add gender identity and expression as an afterthought. And even though, you know, yes, they do mean to include trans people, much of the narrative surrounding it and the evidence they present before the legislature and all of that is very centered on cis queer people. Yet, trans people matter too, and also trans people disproportionately experience conversion practices and also tend to have a different experience of it because it's often much more offered by licensed professionals and healthcare professionals compared to cisgender queer people. And there's also some evidence that it's on the rise for trans people. And so by centering Bill 77, that was important for me because it meant centering trans people. Um, really undoing that, that tendency to center, you know, to decenter trans people in these experiences. Um, and then also, it also tells us a whole lot more because we have that legislative background that explains, you know, what they want these laws to, to cover. And I do think that these bills are fairly broad and include, you know, all sorts of practices, including broadly practices that try to prevent youth from like growing up trans. So um, practices that are really kind of geared towards um, finding a, some sort of like pathological reason why the kid is trans and then trying to like discourage them from, from being trans, um, which is something that was done in uh, Ontario a lot and was part of the reason why they ended up uh, passing the bill, like that was one of the, 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 I think, the motivations for the community push for ban is that trans people were, and especially trans youth, were being pushed into uh, a clinic that tried to prevent kids from growing up trans. Um, now, people at that clinic denied and largely, as far as I know, continue to deny that that amounts to conversion practices. I'm still extremely confused as to what their reasoning is slash would be because that that just seems like textbook conversion practices and in fact looking through looking at the law and and you know my um, I think second chapter is really dedicated to analyzing that question and and I think I make a very compelling case uh, that that's very much covered by bands um, but. Uh, so, so, so that was kind of like the background of why I chose to focus on, on Bill 77. Um, it's also fairly, even though it is exemplary in its legislative history, it's rather unexemplary in its actual wording. It's fairly run of the mill and, you know, that has its benefits because it makes it much easier for that bill to stand for all of the other ones in my analysis, because it kind of looks like all the other ones. Um, so that's not a bad thing. I mean, it certainly has made my job much, 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 much easier. Uh, like, just how little originality there's been <laughs> in uh, across uh, across the board in terms of bells. The, the, I think, like, the... Uh, the um, 
Australian uh, Victoria government is the closest we got to something that's original and really centered uh, survivors, but that's not really in uh, my book because it is relatively recent and I just didn't have the opportunity to integrate it. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I did some, I mean, I, I, I sort of talk about it like quickly, but I didn't, you know, I couldn't do a full analysis at, at that stage of, of the revisions. Um, but, you know, for the most part, there's really little uh, that I could say is like original or groundbreaking that's being done there. And that is unfortunate, um, to say the least, uh, but makes the analysis easier. <laughs> Before I, I ask you a question about um, the the really in-depth, um, thorough, fascinating um, analyses that you do of different um, different kinds of bands, you have, I mean, throughout throughout the book, we talk um, in in bits and pieces. Well, not I, sh- I shouldn't say necessarily in bits and pieces, but because it's it's a significant part of um, of the second, or sorry, of, of the first chapter. Um, but about you know, thinking about the idea of okay, what is what is a conversion practice? Um, really trying to 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 lay it out to to create some kind of of definition. So I was wondering if you could spend a couple of minutes um, explaining how how you think about or how you would um, perhaps not necessarily define, but describe conversion practices. Yeah, it's to an extent, it's a fuzzy reference because there's sort of a spectrum, you know, in the, in, in the literature sometime, like in a recent paper that I did with co-authors, we distinguish, you know, uh, attempts at conversion from conversion services. And depending on how you, kind of define those that can lead to very, very different uh, responses. Um, I would say there's kind of like multiple features. The first one is it's fundamentally defined by its goal. So what conversion practices do is, is really sort of attempt to either prevent someone from uh, becoming or being uh, not straight, not cis, and not gender conforming. It, and I think some, including myself, would include uh, attempts to quote unquote what they call normalize intersex bodies, which, you know, really need no normalization. Those are uh, perfectly fine bodies, uh, but uh, those would also be included to, uh, like, I think conceptually it makes sense to include them conversion practices, although politically speaking, they're often kind of separated out for various reasons I'm not necessarily going to get into. But uh, so conversion practices are really this idea of making someone a sort of like gender normative and and sexuality normative subject. either by preventing them from becoming non-normative or by trying to, you know, change, discourage, or uh, repress the way they currently are. Uh, So that's kind of the aim bit. And then uh, 
one thing that I think is is kind of, you know, something that's peculiar to convert practices is, well, it has to be more than just run-of-the-mill, you know, trans antagonism or, or homo antagonism and, and, and just like prejudice. Like it, there has to be, you know, it's, it's not just uh, the imposition of conversion ideology, it's a conversion practice or in the more common terminology, quote unquote, therapy. So there's this idea that it, it, it has to have this degree of systematicity, like it has to constitute a practice, some sort of systematic effort, like it has to have to be a sustained effort that deploys a a certain understanding of what would make someone change or be prevented from becoming. So it's not you know. So it's not just we don't want that, but it's we don't want that, and we apply techniques that we think is going to lead the way we want. Uh, so there's this systematicity to it, and I think those are like the kind of like two big. Uh, components of what makes conversion practices. Something that um, I found really, really fat. I mean, I found a lot of things fascinating in your, in your book. I took so many notes, was so excited about it because it is, it's so, um, it's so grounded. It's so practical. It's, it's really, I hope, um, I hope it, it does really lead to, to changes here. Cause there's, there's just, there's so much in here. Um, in your third chapter, you talk about different approaches to bans, um, in a variety of, of different jurisdictions. I was, I was wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit about what you found in different places. Um, speaking for myself, I was so surprised on, on some of the similarities and some of the major differences in terms of, of how the bans were worded or what some of the, sorry, what some of the reasoning was even behind it. Yeah. So one thing I found is just how common it was that they just like uh, borrowed from language that was uh, in the... Um, American Psychological Association Task Force report on appropriate responses to sexual orientation. And they essentially like create this list of exclusions being like, you know, conversion practices don't include this. And it's things like, oh, helping into like create an integrated uh, uh, personal identity or something like that. But the problem is like, it's really decontextualized and, they, like unless you know that it comes from the APA report, um, then you don't have the context and then you're very prone to misunderstanding what that means. And in fact, uh, we've seen that a lot of people have kind of like banked on these ambiguities to claim that their conversion practices are not included in the ban. And uh, the reality is that, that by and large, that's not true. The problem is that you have this language that's relatively unspecific and is divorced from its source that provided so much context. Um, you know, for instance, the, the integrated personal identity one. Well, when they're talking about that, they're thinking about um, how to respond to, um, you know, religious uh, gay men, for instance, who don't want to be gay because of their religion. And the kind of response being contemplated is to try to help them find a way to be religious and within their religion while being gay. So notably, uh, one thing that uh, we, that that's been talked about in the literature that that's suggested is um, the idea of like helping someone like look in, for instance, the Bible and, and 
show how actually it's not, there's nothing against uh, being gay or being queer in the Bible. So like really working on people's understanding of how they can be both uh, gay and religious, gay and Christian, and how these aren't in conflict with one another. But decontextualized people are taking this passage on pers- integrated personal identity as, as meaning things like, um, you know, uh, celibate gay or, you know, uh, hate the sin, not the sinner kind of, kind of logic. And that's, or in the trans context, they're saying, oh, well, you know, we're helping you integrate within your with your sex assigned at birth and your uh, quote-unquote natal body uh, and and so they're using that logic and I'm like well that's not what this passage means but if you don't look at the context that's easy to miss and I think that's like kind of a problem with with a lot of, uh, with a lot of the laws is is that they just kind of like took this language without necessarily thinking in the ways in which it could create loopholes um, language that was in a report that was just not meant to be copy pasted into a law you know that's just not it was never intended to be used that way and they probably would have written things differently if they had um, because writing you know, a, a psychological report and writing a law is just not the same kind of exercise. Uh, so that's the first kind of like similarity is like they kind of almost all of them include either that or some sort of like homebrew variant. Um, the the second thing is when you look at them from like how do they mean the enforcement and, and who do they target? Well, a lot of them only target licensed professionals and thus kind of give free reign to uh, unlicensed professionals and to more purely faith-based groups, um, which is quite tragic for the around half of survivors uh, who experience conversion practices um, from non-licensed sources. Um, So that's uh, one of the concerns, but then some get a little bit more creative with that um, and and look at it from a consumer protection standpoint as a sort of like fraudulent consumer practice, uh, which has been a good way of of, of getting it to work in the U.S. Um, Another way that they do is sometimes they make it, they bring it under the scope of human rights law, like in Victoria, and then they allow people to lodge a, a complaint and investigation instead of through the professional licensure scheme, through human rights processes, which tend to, even though they are often under-resourced, tend to be much more accessible than like a lawsuit, like suing someone for professional negligence. So those are, I think, you know, interesting ways of approaching things that are a bit more original. And then some of them take the criminal law approach, um, like now the Canadian government, and uh, I've never really been uh, subtle in my view that I don't believe in criminal law, I don't believe in carceral solutions, um, and I don't think that, not only do I, not only am I against them on, on principle, but I think they're actually really disempowering to survivors and 
can actually make it extremely re-traumatizing to go through that process because you're putting the power in the hands of cops and prosecutors rather than survivors themselves. Building on... Sorry, I'm going to take a drink of water. (coughs) Building on what you just said, something that I found really powerful throughout your book that um, I think I I don't necessarily see emphasized enough, um, at least in my opinion, is that conversion practices don't just target, um, you know, trans youth, but also you know, a range of, of youth who might, um, who might not fit into, um, I don't know, particular idealized, um, categories of gender, um, but also adults. And I was, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the, the scope of that, because throughout, throughout this book, it, it's really clear to me that you're talking about, um, you know, a, a described set of, of practices that, that can impact, you know, a wide range of, of people. Yeah, so one thing that's a mistake is to think that uh, that conversion practices are sort of uh, uniform. They're really not. Um, one thing that's important to understand and emphasize is that conversion practices is really a, a really large set of, of related practices. It's not all the same thing, and it's not all done by the same people in the same way to the same people. So that's the first thing to really understand. We're talking about a really broad family of approaches. Um, so one of the things that people get wrong is first that it's only on youth or that it's like only wrong when it's on youth and that consenting adults should just do what they want. Well, the first thing is it's about 50-50. So in Canada, particularly, it's about 50-50. If we look at more international data, it starts leaning a little bit more adults, but it doesn't depart like too much from 50-50 in terms of minors versus adults. So a lot of it is actually done on adults. And a lot of the data that we have for the harm that it does is data from adults, many of whom ostensibly consented. Um, and for many, a couple, a couple, you know, notes here is as first, just because you consent to something doesn't mean it's not harmful. Um, there's a reason why we don't let doctors sleep with their patients because it's too risky, too dangerous, regardless of, of consent. So in general, law has never been really Im- really never accepted this notion that everything is fine so long as you consent. Um, you can't consent to harm, for instance, under most uh, under most laws. Uh, now, of course, it gets more, it, it, there's more nuance than that, but that's still a general principle is that just because something is uh, consented to doesn't suddenly make it okay. There's There's other ways in which something that is consented to can be wrong uh, and Notably, when it's harmful, and conversion practices are harmful regardless of ostensive consent. Why? Well, first, because people consent for all sorts of reasons are usually uh, maladaptive. They they are afraid for their job, afraid for losing their family, afraid of being disowned. They're 
afraid for their own future and safety. They're afraid of a world that's gonna, you know, harm them for being trans or they get sort of manipulated or even coerced into it by being told, Hey, if you do this therapy with me, like, and go through it, then I'll maybe let you have medical transition. Right. And they frame the conversion practice as a sort of assessment, extended assessment prior to being offered gender affirming care. And then they use that to, to kind of get them into the conversion practices. And that's, you know, that's just um, a way that they, that they kind of like get people to consent. Another way is by not telling them what you're doing. Cause you know, people who do conversion practices don't call them that they're not telling you we're doing conversion practices. And so many people like just don't know. Many of them do know, but also many don't. Um, and so, so that creates a very uh, serious issue in like how much we can trust consent. And then there's also just the fact that, um, you know, data sh- doesn't show that it like data hasn't shown that consenting somehow makes it not harmful. So the harm is still an ever present risk. And then, you also have to ask yourself, like, what would be someone's non-prejudiced reason for wanting conversion practices? Like, this is all rooted in the idea, either directly or indirectly, that there's something wrong with being trans, that there's something wrong with being gay, something wrong with being bisexual. Um, And, you know, if we didn't have those ideas, nobody would come to try and get conversion practices. So, um, and so, yeah, so that's, that's sort of like the first, uh, the, the, that, that's sort of like the issue of, of the adult line. Also, one thing to notice is um, there's a huge spike around the ages of 18, 19 in the data. So around like, uh, we're talking about like a quarter of people who undergo conversion practices do so in either 18 or 19 years old. So really, really huge spike around that age, uh, which just goes to show how much it preys on like vulnerable young adults who just reach the age of majority are usually leaving the uh, family home and and now have to kind of like uh, come in contact with uh, a social world that's not supportive of, of, of queer people and that uh, often, you know, sort of raise on their vulnerability to manipulate them into conversion practices. Uh, so, so there's also, you know, that, 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 that problem with using a stark line between adults and minor, which is, well, yes, but they're usually preying on, on young adults. So, you know, it, it, it kind of defeats the purpose if we exclude adults. Um, then the other one is, you know, this idea that like, oh, well, we can just ban it for, uh, you know, sexual orientation, we don't need to ban it for trans people. Um, well, the first thing to notice, well, first of all, pardon my French, but fuck you. Um, we'll see if they cut that in editing. Uh, but, so that's the first point. Uh, but then it's like, cause you know, yeah, trans people need protection too. But then also it would be a mistake to think that trans conversion practices don't actually harm and target like cisgender youth, like cis queer youth, 
you know, one of the people who spoke a lot against the UCLA clinic that did conversion practices was a sociologist Carl Bryan, who's currently a, a professor of sociology. And he is a cisgender gay man. And yet, you know, he explains the study and the therapy that I received made me feel that I was wrong, that something about me at my core was bad and instilled a sense of shame that stayed with me for a long time afterwards. And he says, you know, he's not, uh, you know, he may have found a place of happiness today, but that is in spite of his experiences because those were extremely traumatic experiences. And it didn't matter that he ended up not being trans. The fact of the matter is that you're having a practice that fundamentally teaches you that there's something wrong with being yourself um, and that if you were trans, that would be wrong. Or if you, and oftentimes that targets gender nonconformity. So you're teaching someone that it's just something wrong with being gender nonconforming. Um, you're teaching them that your love and acceptance of them is conditional. And that's incredibly uh, traumatic. And oftentimes the practices are done by discouraging gender nonconformity, right? And it's interesting that if you look at the UCLA clinic, you have kind of the recursive Lovas crowd, and then you have like Green, and then uh, and, and then Green influenced the practices of like CAMH. And Wreckers wanted to prevent people from becoming gay or trans. The idea was like, they're both sort of a, a negative developmental outcome from being gender nonconforming. And so we must repress gender nonconformity so that people don't become gay or trans. Then I've moved on to people like uh, like Green and Kamich, whose words of the view, well, actually, we think it's fine for people to be gay, but but we think it's it valid to prevent people from being trans, so we're going to try to prevent people from being trans. But the thing is, they're still the same practices. You know, yes, one is more strictly behavioral and one incorporates much more psychoanalytic and, and cognitive uh, approaches, but a lot of it is still the same practice of discouraging gender nonconformity in the hope that it's going to make someone not trans. To the kid, that's, you know, a distinction without a difference to say, oh, well, it's okay because we're not actually trying to prevent you from being gay. We're just preventing you from being trans by stamping out your, uh, your quote unquote effeminacy, right? So, um, there's a need to understand how these practices actually operate and how often they actually target uh, kids who are, you know, don't purport to be trans um, or kids who, you know, think they might be trans, but, uh, you know, grow up not to be, but all still get targeted and harmed by those practices regardless Right. So it's really important to kind of like appreciate that, I think, which is transconversion practices are applied to cis and trans people. And if you don't include like gender identity and expression in your law, not only are you fucking over trans people who have a disproportionately high rate of conversion practices, but um, but you're also fucking over all the cis kids who will be, you know, caught into those practices and be traumatized and be harmed and 
in many cases, die by suicide because of it. I just wanted to, to quickly interject that um, CAMH is the Center for Addiction and Mental Health uh, Gender Identity Clinic for Children and Youth, which has uh, since been closed down, just for those who are, are not familiar with that with that acronym. Um, yeah, they were closed down amidst allegations, so they were uh, engaging in conversion practices and following a report that pointed out that they could not confirm that they didn't con- uh, engage in conversion practices and that much of what they did certainly sounded a lot like it. Um, and yeah, uh, so they decided to close the clinic, uh, in that context. Um, yeah. And also, um, also known as the Jurassic Clark, because it used to be known as the Clark Institute before. I, I have, um, uh, I, I could ask you so, so, so many questions about this. Um, but the, the last question that I'll, I'll, I'll pose, um, to you is that something, something that really strikes me throughout the book, and um, perhaps this is just the legal anthropologist in me talking, is um, the, the social impact of banning conversion practices on social norms, but also really thinking about different ways to go about stopping these practices, not just through a, a, a ban or a law, but also through professional organizations and education. Um, and I, you have, I know, tremendous experience um, in engaging on a variety of projects around this topic. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, the importance of education and professional organizations in, you know, inter- intervening in and ending this practice. But also, you know, how would you imagine, you know, an ideal consultation or an ideal engagement um, in, in really, you know, ending ending this? Yeah, I mean, so unfortunately, there's a lot of, um, there's no way to do things perfectly. There's no way to completely eradicate conversion practices so long as cisnormativity and heteronormativity exist. What we can do is our best. And that means, you know, professional association taking very seriously their role of not just pointing at conversion practices and saying, oh, that's not allowed, because honestly, that's lazy. That doesn't tell your members the message. Like, you need a much bigger pedagogical platform. You need to integrate that into your education curriculum. You need to, you know, have that be mandatory knowledge from the earliest possible so that it's integrated in the professional identity. And not just the saying no, but actually knowing what, conversion practices look like and having an effective enforcement mechanism for it because unfortunately uh you know a lot of the time people say oh that's not allowed but then there's you know if if it happens there's very little you can do because there's no effective enforcement mechanism in place and the reality is a lot of professional associations are in denial about the role that licensed professionals have in conversion practices because they think, oh, it can't be happening among our members because these are our peers. We we know them, we believe in it's happening among you. Like like I said, like about half of conversion practices are uh, are you know licensed professionals. And if we add things like counselors, teachers and 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 people like that, you were going even much, much higher in terms of, of the percentage. Like, 
this is being done by people who have positions of authority, who have oftentimes professional bodies licensing them. And so really having effective work at that level would really do a lot to reducing the rate of conversion practices. Um, wouldn't remove all of them, but it's certainly a lot. And unfortunately, I think associations don't have the willingness. They don't have, they don't want to put their, um, was the expression, put their money where your mouth is. Um, you know, they, they want to do things quick. They don't want to do things right. That is, um, I think, a, perhaps a good way to, to end our conversation um, for today. Uh, Florence, if people want to find out more about your work, um, where, should they, where should they look to find you? Yeah, so um, you can follow me on uh, Twitter. Uh, my handle is at but not the city because I'm Florence, but not the city. Um, otherwise, you can go to uh, florenceashley.com to find more information about me, about my work, and find uh, all of my publications. And I encourage you to get the book. Um, there's many places you can get it on the internet. I'll let you, uh, uh, you know, find it. Much to my dismay, it seems that the cheapest place is on Amazon. Um, but I'll let you... Uh, uh, I'll let readers figure out where they want to find it. I will. I will add um, links on where to to get your book when this when this goes up um, online. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time today, Florence. Um, both because this is a really, really important, really practical, really thorough intervention, and also just to thank you um, as a as a trans person for doing this really, really important work. 